I want, I want to do something together, group exercise. Um, something hit me during worship that uh, the, the name Yahweh was actually, when it was pronounced in Hebrew, was almost like breathing. It was just like Yahweh. And like it's the breath of God. The spirit is referred to as the breath of God. With every breath, we're able, right? And, and it's his breath filling our lungs to praise him. So here's what I want you to do. Just close your eyes. I just want you to think of the goodness of God. I just want you to inhale deeply. Just, just breathe in. Just slow down. And then exhale. And just say, God, I love you. I'm here for you. Speak to me. Amen, amen. Isn't it good to slow down sometimes? You know, and use what God gives us to serve him and love him back. And I love that. I love celebrating baptisms. Man, to celebrate life change, ah, that's what we exist to do, right? Um, That we celebrate lives changed by the message of Jesus, the gospel. There's a lot of things that we think will change our life, but it doesn't have the lasting change that the message of Jesus has and the grace of God uh, that he gives on us. And so if you got your Bible, go to John chapter 8. We're uh, in a series called More Than Stories, and, and it's to really get us past the, the notion that the Bible's full of stories, and we just read the stories, and we think, okay, this year I've got to read it again, and the next year I'll read it, and then I'll read it, but it's really taken our time to dive in, that, that it's not just a story, that this is the inerrant, the, the inspired Word of God, and He wants to reveal Himself to us through His Word, and as we, as we go through it, I, I want you to see Jesus. Because if he's got the message that can change our life, and he's the only one that can give us eternal life, then let's slow down and, and ju- not just skim over stories in the Bible, but truly see Jesus in the story. And um, you know, this, if you go to John chapter 8, you're going to see this first section uh, has some, some italics around it, and it'll say the earliest manuscripts did not include this section of scripture. And scholars, you know, biblical scholars love to debate. Um, And uh, they don't have a debate or argument on whether or not this is inspired scripture and it should be in the gospel of John. Their arguments are where it should go. Like, where in John's gospel should this go? I personally think this is a great spot because, you know, if you read the first part of this, the verse, it's chapter 7, verse 53, it says, they each went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. So there's a transition there. So who went home? And it transitions beautifully out of the previous passage because if you remember last week's teaching, we were teaching about Jesus going to the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, and he's teaching at the temple. The Pharisees sent uh, officials or soldiers from the, from the Sanhedrin to arrest Jesus. The charges that they were bringing against him was breaking the Sabbath law and then blasphemy because he claimed equality with God. When he says, I and the Father are one. When he says, my Father. And so they, they, they're after him. So the, the soldiers show up and they couldn't arrest him. And they told the, the Pharisees when they got back empty-handed, they said, no one spoke like this man. We've never heard this, heard the authority or heard anyone speak like this. So they come back empty-handed. The, 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 the Pharisees, the leaders are getting on to the soldiers for not doing their job. And then Nicodemus steps in and goes, well, wait a second. You know, let, let's do this. Let's handle this correctly. They turn on him. And then we see they each went to his own house. So they, they just kind of, they had this scuffle and then it just settled. They didn't do anything. There was no action. Jesus didn't get arrested. And so they, they, they go home. And then it says in verse two, uh, verse two says, early in the morning, Jesus came to the, again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and he taught them. 
So Jesus went out to the Mount of Olives. This was after the, after the, the, the last day of the festival, the Feast of Tabernacles. And then he goes out to the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is just outside of the city walls of Jerusalem. The Mount of Olives is where Jesus was ascended into heaven after his resurrection. Uh, you can overlook the entire city. And from the Mount of Olives, you have a beautiful view. Jesus could see the temple. We now see where the temple was. I mean, of course, you mean you look in the mirror and you see the temple, right? But, but Jesus could see the temple. And he goes down and he goes into this area to teach. In John chapter 8, verse 20, tells us where in the temple he's teaching. He says, by the treasury. And the treasury was on the outer perimeter of what's called the court of women. So the, the court of women was the place that, the, that was as far as the women could go in the temple process and around it were the, you know, we have giving stations in the back of our worship center. So their giving stations, the treasury was there so they would bring in uh, the, the money they were give, giving and making their sacrifice and they would pay that's where they would pay the temple tax and so it was in the treasury but in the middle of that was the court of women. That's where Jesus chose to teach. And it's, it's incredible. I love that Jesus came come here and he's going to teach. And he starts teaching and then it says the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman. The scribes, let me explain that real quick. The scribes would be known as scholars um, or lawyers of the law. And when we talk about the law, it's the Old Testament, specifically the first five books of the Old Testament. And they would know the law inside and out. And they could, they could have incredible arguments about the, like I said, scholars love to argue or debate as they call it. Um, and they would have these incredible arguments and they knew it inside and out. And so the Pharisees also knew the law, but these scholars, these scribes were, I mean, it was their life. And so they come, they, the scribes and the Pharisees bring this woman to Jesus who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, I, I highly doubt that they just pulled her out of bed. I mean, I mean, it's not like some, one of the Pharisees opened a door, like, what's behind this door? Oh, come with me. We're going to go trap Jesus. So what would have known, they would have known is this woman probably had been accused of adultery. There's probably been, been talk, you know, and it gets around. And so they bring her to Jesus, and they say this. Now, in the law of Moses, it's commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. So Jesus is teaching in the court of women. The scribes and the Pharisees bring in this woman that was caught in the act of adultery. And they say, the law says she's to die and she's to be stoned. So what do you say, Jesus? So they interrupt the whole teaching that he's got going on. And they come to him, they say, teacher, so they recognize some, some authority of the law and authority of the word. Some translations, they would say, rabbi. And so Jesus, he stops his teaching. They say this thing, and then he just starts writing in the ground. And, and, and they, 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 they've got to have this look of satisfaction. I mean, you know, it's the parent, parent look, right? If you're a parent, you know that look of satisfaction. When you've been trying to get, get, get your kid to change a behavior or something, and you finally catch him, you're like, yeah, I got you. You're busted. I, my mom had that look down. I could sense the muscles in her, her face flexing before the look even came on because I knew I was caught. So they have to be standing there with this little satisfied grin on their face going, we got him. Because for Jesus to say, yes, stone her, he's breaking some of the law. Because see, the law, if you go back to Leviticus chapter 20, it says that if, if a man commits adultery, 
then, then both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. So if Jesus said, yes, stone her, he's breaking part of the law because where's the guy? They didn't bring the guy. I mean, last time I checked, it takes two, baby. You know, so they didn't bring the guy. So if he says yes, he's breaking part of the law. If he says no, he's breaking the law fully. So Jesus is writing on the ground and he's got to be thinking like, I, I definitely can't say yes because if I say yes, then this. I can't say no. If I say no, it's this. So I clearly cannot choose the cup in front of me because you would have put it there. If I choose the cup in front of you, then you might have switched it. Come on, somebody. You know what I'm talking about. You're welcome. Just making sure you're paying attention. Oh yeah, so Jesus is writing in the dirt. See, I'm trying to help you and I'm the one who falls off the wire. Um, so he's riding in the dirt. Now, Jesus doesn't, he's not, he's, there's no arguing in his mind of like yes or no. He's God, right? He's already perceived the heart. He already knew this moment was coming. So he's riding in the ground. And they said this, they're, they're, they keep on pastoring. Verse 7 says, and they continue to ask him, Jesus, what do you say? What's the answer? What's the answer? What do you say? Give us an answer. We want an answer. Tell us now. Does that sound like a child? So what do we answer? We don't say yes or no. We say Maybe. Or if you're a father, you say, go ask your mother. Um, so Jesus stood up and he said, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. That's a mic drop. So he's writing in the ground. They're pastoring him. He's like saying, okay, if any of you are without sin, start throwing. And then he just goes back. And, and people have speculated, what was Jesus writing in the dirt? I mean, there's so much time spent about what was he writing in the dirt? You know, was he, was, he, was he writing the sins of the Pharisees and the scribes? You know, was he writing that? You know, was he writing things from the Old Testament? Was he writing something from Deuteronomy that would tag on to this law that they're trying to pin him in that the witness has to be the first one to throw the stone? Was he, I, I thought about this. Like, what if he was writing this from Romans chapter 2? What if he wrote, therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, one another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Now, he didn't write that because Jesus like, I'll give that to Paul in a little bit. He's going to write that to the Romans. But, but, but he could be, could he be accusing them? Or that we're guilty of the same things. Well, you got to go back to Ezekiel. And in Ezekiel, God is speaking through the prophet against the charges on the nation of Israel and Judah because of their, listen to this, wicked adultery to the Lord their God. They had followed and pursued other gods. So was Jesus writing that? Was he writing, you know, what was he, was he just doodling? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what he was writing in the dirt because this is what the word says. It says, but when they heard it, they heard what? If any of you are without sin, go ahead and throw the stone. When they heard it, not when they read what he was writing in the dirt, because if it was about what he was writing in the dirt, he would have said when they read it, and this is what he wrote. John would have said this is what he wrote. But it says when they heard it, if you're without sin, if you're on such a pedestal of perfection, then you can start throwing stones at her. When they heard it, they begin to back away. They begin to go away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. I love how it starts with the older ones because the older I get, and man, when I think about the glory of God and the grace of God and the mercy of God, it reminds me 
of how much I have wronged him. And the enemy helps with that. Listen, the enemy loves writing our sins all over the place. And I start seeing as I, as I, the longer I live, the longer that list is. But it starts with the old ones. They go away and Jesus is there. He's, he's still doodling in the ground. And Jesus stood up and said to the woman, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. That's a moment of grace. I mean, that's incredible. She is guilty under the law. I mean, the law was given to show us our guilt. It's Romans 3.20, that, that the law reveals our, our guilt. And so the, as people talk about the Old Testament, New Testament, you know, like the Old Testament's law, the New Testament's grace, so does grace cancel out the law? Jesus never said that. Jesus said, I didn't, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. So when you look at the Old Testament, New Testament, they go together so beautifully because the law and grace complement each other because what happens is the law shows us our conviction. That we're convicted as guilty in sin, but grace brings the pardon. Grace brings the conversion. They combine so beautifully. It takes all of that. And this woman is 100% guilty. And Jesus says, I don't condemn you. Now go and sin no more. And Jesus wasn't being easy on her sin. I mean, sometimes we stop and go, you know, we'll, we'll say, I'm sorry, forgive me. And we think God's like, oh, it's okay. Just keep on living your life the way you want to live it. Jesus is not easy on the sin. How do we know that? Because for him to say, I don't condemn you, means he took her condemnation. Because 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, our, for our sake, he who knew no sin, Jesus who knew no sin, became sin on our behalf. Why? so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus knows for me to pardon her means I'm going to pay for it. And Jesus is the only one who could throw a stone. And instead of throwing a stone at her, he offers grace. And three days after his crucifixion, he rolled a stone. And in, in that moment, man, the, the, the grace that that changes her. And, and, and here's how we know that grace is at work because they start out, teacher, we caught this woman and we want to trap you, so what do you say? But then look at how she responds. Where are they? Is no one here to condemn you? And she says, no one, Lord. She didn't say sir. She didn't say teacher. She said, no, no one's here. No, she said, no one, Lord. That's capital L. That means no one, God, no one Christ, because Lord is a name, a descriptor for Christ, who the Messiah, who is standing in front of her, who is Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who is God in the flesh, Emmanuel, the word incarnate that says, does no one condemn you? And we don't get an insight as to what's going on inside of this woman's heart, but something triggered faith because she calls him Lord. And we know from scripture that all who call upon the name of the Lord, what? Will be saved. Jesus addresses the two greatest needs of this woman. The first one, forgiveness. He frees her from the guilt. You gotta think she's feeling some guilt in that moment. She's gotta be feeling some embarrassment and some shame. And he frees her of the guilt. He forgives her. And then, go and sin no more. The other, the second greatest need is a new life. 
There has to be something that happens within us to change us so we can walk away from our habitual sins. Jesus is the fulfillment of this. I mean, in in this passage, I think we see some, some definite things glaring at us that are so beautifully the gospel. And those things are that Jesus knows our sin before it gets exposed, that Jesus is the fulfillment of justice, mercy, and grace, and then Jesus calls us to walk into a new life. I mean, Jesus knows our sin before it's exposed. Jesus knows our heart. He knew the heart of these religious leaders, and he knew their sin. He could have written them in the dirt. He knew this woman's sin before she was brought into the court of women. Before it got exposed to other people, he knew it. He knows our sin. He knows my sin and he knows your sin before any of it gets exposed. You want to hear a scary thing? Let me me read you a scary thing. This is in Luke chapter 12. It says this, starting in verse 2. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be uh, known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. You know what that means? What I try to cover up, God will uncover. Why? Because he loves me too much for me to continue living in darkness. He loves me too much for me to continue living in sin. He loves me too much to continue living under a death sentence. So what I try to cover, God will uncover because of his his great love for me. But the beautiful opposite of that is what I uncover before God, he will cover How? By the precious blood of Jesus that was shed on the cross. That it's only by the blood that we can have a covering of the sin that we uncover before God. It's in our nature to to cover up. I mean, every one of us do it. It, we're, We're all alike in that regard. We all cover up. I mean, think about it. You get pulled over, Right? And, and the, the officer comes to the window. Can I see your license and registration? So you hand it over and do you know why I pulled you over today? No. What, what, why would you pull me over today? I have no idea. I mean, we know there's this thing called the speed limit, but all of a sudden in that moment, we have no idea what it is. Well, no, I have no idea. Well, you were doing 68 and a 40. Was I? Is this a 40? I mean, see, the law shows us that we're guilty. And we're all trying to cover it up. And some people go, well, what about people who've never heard the law? What about people who've never, I mean, they, they stand before God, they die, they never heard the law. Here's the, here's the thing. Then, then here's how God, because we, we all will be judged. Here's how God will judge us. He will judge us based on the law that you have written in your own life of how you expect other people to live to your standard. That's scary, isn't it? So the law shows us our need for grace. But yet, our condition of humanity is to cover it up. You go back to the Garden of Eden, right? I mean, Adam and Eve, they sinned. They're exposed. They realize, like, we're naked. So they they grab the fig leaves, right? And they cover themselves. God comes into the garden. Adam, where are you? That wasn't a question for God. That was a question for Adam. Because what God is doing, because he loves Adam and he's created him in his image, he says, I'm exposing you. And Adam's like, we were naked. Who told you you're naked? Well, you got to expose. It's her fault. But they cover, but here's something beautiful. 
God then killed an animal to cover them. First sacrifice in the Bible, first death in the Bible. Because without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sin. So God took that to cover them. That's a foreshadowing of Jesus by the blood that he shed on the cross. And see, it takes, it, it's only by the blood of Jesus we can be saved because he is a different nature than ours. That you and I, born in the line of Adam, we inherited this sin nature. And so there has to be something to break that nature. And it is Jesus because he is God in the flesh. That he was, he was uh, uh, born of a virgin Mary and that was through the Holy Spirit. And he is a nature different than ours so that his blood, he is perfect. He is sinless. He is the one who can change everything. And he is, Jesus is the fulfillment and the source of justice, mercy, and grace. They all go together. See, the leaders brought this woman to Jesus and said, we want justice on this woman. She's guilty. She deserves to die. And every one of us are under the same sentence of death because the law has shown our guilt. It's convicted us. So the religious leaders in front of Jesus, they want justice. You got to think the woman wants mercy because she's been drug out in front of her peers and all these, here's the charge. This is what it says. We caught her. We know she's guilty. So she needs to die. What do you say, Jesus? She's, at, she's probably in her heart saying, I need some mercy. God, would you just, could you get me out of this, please? And justice and mercy are needed. But like go back to the police officer, right? We, we want mercy for us because when he's at our window, I need mercy. Just forgive me. Let me go on home. We make up excuses and let me go. But then let's say a couple days later, you're driving down the road and somebody's driving like a fool. You know, and we see people driving on the shoulder. We see people coming. People, all these, you're like, where's a police officer right now? Why? Because we want justice for them, mercy for us, right? But Jesus being the fulfillment of all of it. How is Jesus the fulfillment of justice? It's what he did on the cross. Because see, we like to sanitize the cross, right? We make it into gold jewelry. And it should be a remembrance. But listen, we can't sanitize the cross. It is the most brutal point in human history. Because on the cross, an innocent Jesus took on my sin. And not only taking on my sin, but he took on the wrath of God. What does that mean? Jesus, under justice, took the penalty that I deserve. For me to receive justice is for me to die. And Jesus died in my place. So justice was served at the cross. Because he paid it and paid it in full, he can now pardon me with the fullness of his mercy. That's the power of grace. And it is, Ephesians 2 says, by grace we are saved. It is a gift of God. It's not of our own doing. If we could figure out, if we could use the law to build our own righteousness, the best thing it would be is self-righteousness and we would brag about it, we would vlog about it, we would write a book about it and we would try to make a billion bucks on it. Because we figured out, that we've cornered the market and let me tell you how I did it. That's why grace is a gift. That's why we can't earn it. We don't deserve it and we'll never work for it. He gives it freely. How? Through salvation, how do we get salvation? Through faith. It's by faith we are saved. 
At some moment, faith lit up for this woman because she called him Lord. And she received grace. And she's no longer under the condemnation. Remember Romans chapter 8 starts out, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How do we get out from under the weight of condemnation? To be in Christ Jesus. How do we be declared in Christ Jesus? We declare him Lord. We believe by faith that he gave his life on the cross for us and that he was raised from the dead. And We confess that with our mouth. We believe it in our heart. When we confess that, then salvation changes the game removes the condemnation weight from our shoulders because it has been placed fully on the shoulders of Christ on the cross and he paid for it fully and the resurrection shows the power that that he can deal with it and so we get the full the full satisfaction of justice mercy because of the grace of Jesus the grace of God but then this grace see this grace uh, let, me, let me read this. It's in Ephesians chapter two. Um, it's the same chapter where, it's, where we said, by grace you've been saved. I'm gonna, I'm gonna back up because in the beginning of chapter two, uh, it tells us that, that we're dead in our sins. We're dead in our trespasses, that we walk in a course of the world. We were hopeless and we're helpless, but verse four starts out, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. So this life, we've been made alive. We're dead in sin. He makes us alive by grace. And that is the new life that we talk about, that Jesus dealt with the two biggest needs of this woman, forgiveness and new life. The two greatest needs you and I have are forgiveness and new life. See, we can be declared forgiven and out from under the weight of condemnation but for Jesus to say go and sin no more I don't have the willpower to make that happen but it's Jesus in that moment calling me to walk in this newness of life that I, my, our human tendencies are when the stress gets on us we go back to the same old patterns we fall into what the, I call them habitual sins we keep going back and, and, and what's scary is we'll get into this mindset of abusing grace because we like this but we want the no condemnation part. It's kind of, it's kind of this just struck me. It's kind of like, remember the guilt-free potato chips or guiltless potato chips? I want to eat potato chips but I don't want the guilt. It doesn't happen. I have gotten to the bottom of many bags of Cheetos and felt the shame. But what Paul would say in Romans chapter six is if this is your heart, then, then this, we've, got some, we've got some work to do here because he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. That's a straw. He's like, absolutely not. What are you thinking? How can we who died to sin still live in it? 
Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. When we baptize, we say you're buried with Christ in death and raised to walk in new life. The baptism is symbolism of what's happened. That we've died to our old self. We've been raised by the glory of the Father into a new life. And it's no longer I who live. That's how we live the new life. And I hear people go, well, I'm never going to be perfect. You're right. And I, you know, I'm not perfect. And if you're looking for me to be perfect, a perfect pastor, a perfect man, a perfect guy, then, then keep look, go look somewhere else because you will not find it. But the problem is we can't continue to abuse grace. If we abuse grace, Paul's saying, are you even saved? But if we're saved, then, then here's the thing. I know I'm not going to be perfect on this side of heaven, but it doesn't become excuse. It means I submit to a process of being perfected. It's called sanctification. It's just a big church word for grow up. And how do we, how do, we do this? The finished work of Christ on the cross. It is finished, he said, Paid in full, grace and grace abounds and grace can bring us new life in Christ. So the finished work of Christ and then when we get saved, that moment the Holy Spirit moves in, seals us for the day of redemption. We're given the Holy Spirit as a guarantee, a deposit for that day. But he just doesn't sit there until the day of redemption. We give the Holy Spirit room in our life to walk us through this process of being perfected. So what does that look like in my life? It means the things that I did, I no longer do. I mean, I still sin. You still sin. Every one of us falls short of the glory of God. But what happens is as the Holy Spirit grows in my life and I start to grow up, I realize that sin that grieves the Spirit, which hurts the heart of God, now breaks my heart too. And I start to walk through life thinking differently. There's no way this woman would ever forget this moment. I mean, the, the weight of embarrassment and shame, but also the moment that Lord said, I don't condemn you. Now let's live a new life. That's a moment. You know, it's like we come to baptism. For some of y'all, it's been decades since you've been baptized. But you look back on that and it's a reminder that I was under a penalty of death and I deserve it. And when I uncovered it before the God of the universe who loves me and gave himself as a ransom for me, when I uncover that before him, he shows up with a pardon written by his hand in his blood that says, you are now declared the righteousness of God. And when we think about that, it's absolutely amazing. Jesus, we love you. We are guilty. We have to confess that. And God, the exhaustion of trying to cover it up is more than we can bear. And you already know it. 
And yet, in your great love for us, you still went to the cross and you bore the punishment and you took the justice of God on your own shoulders for me. You see my sin. You see my brokenness. And just as every time I see you, Jesus, in Scripture, engaging with broken people and hurting people, you have compassion on them. And your compassion led you to the cross. And instead of throwing stones at me, you threw yourself on the cross to pay for it. And I pray today for a renewal that we look at a moment like baptism. We look back at a moment in our life where we declared you Lord and from that moment everything changed. And I pray you would change people today by your grace. I pray they would receive it. Receive your forgiveness and from this point walk forward in a new life that honors and glorifies you. May we do that for your name. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. I love you guys.